Hello, and welcome to another episode of Nostalgic Mystery Radio. I'm your host, Stevie Kay, and it's my honor to bring you the radio shows of yesteryear. For today's episode, I bring you part five of Agatha Christie's One Two Buckle My Shoe. So sit back and relax, and I hope you enjoy this Nostalgic Mystery Radio. Thank you for listening. The powerful financier Alistair Blunt had commissioned me to find the elusive Miss Sainsbury Seal. She had been the maid-in-waiting of my nursery rhyme for far too long, and it was time she was brought out into the open. But in the meantime, that unsavory young man, Frank Carter, had been arrested for the attempted assassination of Mr. Blunt and for the murder of my dentist, Mr. Morley. John Moffat as Hercule Poirot and Philip Jackson as Chief Inspector Jap in Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe. So now you want to see Frank Carter? You are unwilling? Oh, I shan't make any objection. No good if I did. Who's the Home Secretary's little pet? You are. And you've got half the cabinet in your pocket. What do you want to see Carter for? To ask him whether he murdered Morley? Yes, my friend. That is exactly the reason. And I suppose you think he'll tell you if he did? He might tell me, yes. <laughs> You've got a bee in your bonnet about Carter, haven't you? For some reason or other, you don't want him to be guilty. Oh, no, my friend, there you are wrong. It is the other way round. I do want to believe him guilty. I suppose you've got hold of something which more or less proves him to be innocent. So why are you so anxious to see him? To satisfy myself. So they've sent you along, have they? Suppose they think you can trick me into saying something stupid. Got your police pals listening in, have you? You are wrong. This is a private interview between you and me. Well, you don't expect me to believe that, do you? Now, do you remember a girl called Agnes Fletcher? Never heard of her. She was the Morley's housemaid at 58 Queen Charlotte Street. So? On the morning of the day Morley was shot, this girl, Agnes, happened to look over the banisters from the top floor flat. She saw you on the stairs, waiting and listening. Presently, she saw you go along to Mr. Morley's room. The time was then 26 minutes past 12. That's rubbish! The police have put her up to it, or you have. Now, listen to me, Mr. Carter. This girl will go into court and tell her story, and she will be believed because she is telling the truth. Now, tell me what happened when you went into Molly's room. I was never there! She's making it up, or you are! Mr. Carter, I do not care for you very much. You are a bully and a liar, and you would be no loss to the world. I have only to stand back and let you persist in your story, and you will almost certainly be hanged for the murder of Morley. It's all a pack of lies. If you did not kill him, your only hope is to tell me the truth of what happened that morning. All right. I'll tell you. If you're deceiving me, I hope you'll rot in hell. I did go into his room. I waited till I could be sure of getting him alone. Foreign chap came out, but I thought I'd wait a bit longer just to be certain. Then another gent came out and went down, and I nipped in as quick as I could. I didn't knock. I was all set to have it out with Morley. Yes? 
It was lying there, dead. I couldn't believe it at first, but he was dead all right. His hand was stone cold, and I saw the bullet hole in his head had a black crust of blood round it. So what did you do? Well, I knew they'd say I'd done it. I wiped the door handle with my handkerchief, and I went downstairs as quick as I could, and I let myself out. And that's the truth. I swear it. You've got to believe me. I do believe you. But you mustn't tell them. They'll hang me for a cert if they know I went in there. On the contrary. Your story has confirmed what I know to be the truth. You can leave it now to me. You don't look very well, Monsieur Poirot. Sometimes I do not care for the things I have to do. You've got your man, I see. Frank Carter, I'm rather surprised. I was certain it was one of those counter-espionage mix-ups. I didn't expect it to be a private case. But you are wrong. The trouble is that one goes by one's own experience. I've been mixed up in the secret service business for so long, I'm inclined to see it everywhere. You have observed in your time a conjurer offer a card. Have you not what is called forcing a card? Yes, of course. That is what was done here. Every time I thought of a private reason for Morley's death, a card was forced on me. Amberiotis, Alistair Blunt, the unsettled state of the country. As for you, Mr. Barnes, you did more to mislead me than anyone. I suppose that's true. But as far as I knew, Carter had left the house long before Morley was killed. Carter was there at 26 minutes past 12. He actually saw the murderer. Then it wasn't Carter. But he did see the murderer. And did he recognize him? No, Mr. Barnes. He only saw him from above. But if he had, he would not have believed it. So, Monsieur Poirot, have you found her? Yes, Mr. Blunt. I have found her. You look tired. Yes, I am tired. And it is not pretty what I have to tell you. Is she dead? Well, that depends on how you like to look at it. My dear man, a person must be dead or alive. Miss Sainsbury Seal must be one or the other. Ah, but who is Miss Sainsbury Seal? Do you mean there isn't any such person? Oh, no. The difficulty is that there are two. Is this some kind of joke? Oh, no. I have never been more serious. But let us put the matter into some kind of perspective. From the very beginning of this case, I have, as I believe the expression is, been led up the garden path. What on earth do you mean by that? One of the patients in Morley's waiting room on the day of his death was a Mr. Barnes. He had no intention of misleading me, but he was convinced that the intended victim that morning was yourself. Well, that's a bit far-fetched, surely. Was it? After all, Chief Inspector Jap had been called in. It is not customary to assign a leading officer from Scotland Yard to the apparent suicide of a mere dentist. I see what you're driving at. And it is true, is it not, that there are various groups of people to whom it is vital that you should be, shall we say, removed. That's true enough, I suppose. And there is a curious lavishness about this case. Three deaths in one day, after all, that suggests that human life is of no consequence. A recklessness which appears to point to a major crime against a public figure. Appears? Every public man has a private life also. That was my mistake. I forgot the private life. 
there could exist private reasons for killing you. You had, for example, relations who would inherit your fortune when you died. Even so, Monsieur Poirot, I hardly think they would carry it as far as murder. And then came the supreme instance of what I call the forced card, the purported attack on you by Frank Carter. If that attack was genuine, then it could only have been a political crime. But was there another explanation? The man who rushed up and seized Carter, Howard Rakes, he could easily have fired the shot and tossed the pistol at Carter's feet so he would automatically pick it up. Oh, but surely... He's a bitter enemy of everything you stand for. More than that, he is the man who might marry your niece and inherit part of your fortune. Even so, I do not see Howard Rakes as a plausible assassin. But there was another possibility. That the shooting incident was a charade staged for the benefit of Hercule Poirot. During the service in the church at Exham, the following morning, I listened to the words of the psalm. The proud have set a snare for me. And it was like a revelation. Had a snare been set for me? And if it had, who had laid it? For the first time, I began to see the case the right way up. And I realized that Miss Sainsbury's seal was the beginning and the middle and the end of the case. I always suspected that she was somehow at the center of it. But I need to go back to the point where the matter began. My first sight of her shoe. Her shoe? After my appointment with Morley on that fatal day, I was standing on the doorstep of his house when a taxi drew up. The door opened, and a woman's foot appeared, wearing a new patent leather shoe with a large ornate buckle. It belonged to a rather badly dressed middle-aged lady. And this was Miss Sainsbury Seal? If you wish. And then she caught the buckle of her shoe in the cab door, and it was wrenched off. I picked it up and returned it to her. Later that same day, I went with Chief Inspector Jap to our hotel to interview the lady. And had the buckle been sewn back on? It had not. On that same evening, the lady walked out of her hotel and did not return. That, shall we say, was the end of part one. And part two? Began a month later, when Chief Inspector Jap summoned me to King Leopold Mansions to take a look at a decayed and disfigured body that had been found in a fur chest. And the first thing I noticed was... A shabby old shoe with a large buckle. Well? You do not take the point? It was a shabby, well-worn shoe. But Miss Sainsbury Seal was wearing new shoes when I encountered her outside Morley's surgery. She was wearing new shoes when Jap and I talked to her later that day, and she was wearing new shoes when she was last seen entering King Leopold Mansions. She never left there again. Yet the shoes on the corpse were, as I said, well-worn. One does not wear out a pair of shoes in a day. Forgive me, Monsieur Poirot, but I can't see that it's important. Can you not? And then I studied the corpse itself. I could not understand why the face had been so ferociously battered as to render it unrecognisable. Must we go over all that again? We know the answer. The dental records proved the body was not Miss Sainsbury Seal, but someone called Sylvia Chapman. Mm, again, there was something wrong. 
we discovered that Mrs. Chapman took a size 5 in shoes. Miss Sainsbury Seal wore a 10-inch stocking, which meant that she took at least a size 6 shoe. If the body were that of Sylvia Chapman, dressed in Miss Sainsbury Seal's clothes, then her shoes would be too big. In fact, the shabby pair of shoes on the body fitted very tightly. I'm sure you wish to demonstrate how meticulous your investigation has been, but for the life of me, I can't understand where any of this is leading. It leads to the fact that, as I told you, there were two Miss Sainsbury Seals. The pious but rather silly woman who was devoted to good works, whom you encountered two months ago outside Morley's house, and the ruthless, cold-blooded woman who apparently murdered Sylvia Chapman. So what, in your view, actually happened? The porter at King Leopold Mansion said that Miss Sainsbury Seal came there twice to Sylvia Chapman's flat, but the first time, a week or more before Morley's death, was in fact the last Go on. After that, the other Miss Sainsbury seal took her place and dressed in her clothes, except for the shoes, which were too large for her. So she bought a new pair of patent leather shoes with big buckles and took a room at the Glengarry Court Hotel. She played the part of Miss Sainsbury seal there for a week, wore her clothes, talked with her voice, encountered me at the door of Morley's house on the day of his death, was interviewed by Chief Inspector Jap and myself. That evening she walked out of her hotel and was last seen by the porter at King Leopold Mansions at the door of Sylvia Chapman's flat. So are you telling me that the dead body in that flat was Miss Sainsbury seal after all? May we? It was a very clever Double bluff. But surely the dental evidence... Uh, uh, uh. Now we come to the heart of the mystery. Morley could not give the evidence because he was dead. It was his dental records that established the identity of the dead woman and they had been tampered with. But how could that happen? Oh, very easily. Both Sylvia Chapman and Miss Sainsbury Seal were Morley's patients. With Morley out of the way, all that had to be done was to relabel the charts, exchanging the names. I know you have a great reputation, Monsieur Poirot, but all I can see is the fantastic implausibility of the whole thing. If I understand you correctly, you are implying that Miss Sainsbury Seal was deliberately murdered and that poor Morley was also murdered to prevent him from identifying her dead body. But why? Why should anyone go to such fantastic lengths to get rid of a perfectly harmless middle-aged woman? Let us go back to the first time Miss Sainsbury Seal came on the scene, several weeks before the murder, when she encountered you and your niece outside Molly's house and claimed to have been a good friend of your wife. A claim that was patently untrue, though I have no idea what her purpose was. But consider for a moment. What if her story were true, and she had in fact known your wife? In that case, your wife must have been the kind of person Miss Sainsbury Seal could have known, someone of her own station in life, a person involved in missionary or charity work, or to go back a little further, an actress. Therefore, the person she told you had been her good friend could not have been the fabulously wealthy Rebecca Arnhold, for she had never moved in that kind of society. What exactly are you suggesting, Monsieur Poirot? What I am suggesting, Mr. Blunt, is that when you married Rebecca Arnhold, you were already married. 
You were only a junior partner in one of her many banking concerns. She fell in love with you, and dazzled by the vista not so much of wealth as of power, you suppressed the fact of your marriage and deliberately committed bigamy, and your real wife acquiesced in the situation. And who is this real wife supposed to have been? She has gone by various names, but for the moment let us restrict ourselves to her alias as Sylvia Chapman. King Leopold Mansions was a convenient location not far from your house on the Chelsea Embankment. You borrowed her surname from a real secret agent so that it would give support to her story about a husband who was involved in intelligence work. Everything was going very well until chance brought you face to face with a woman who remembered knowing your real wife long before you married Rebecca Arnold. No, in itself, this would have mattered very little, but when Miss Sainsbury Seal came home from India earlier in the year, she happened to be on the same boat as Mr. Amberiotis. He helped her over something, uh, fuss over luggage, perhaps, and his kindness was repaid some time later when he happened to meet her in a London street. He took her out to lunch, and she babbled away to him about her meeting with Mr. Blunt and having known his wife many years ago. Amberiotis was, among other things, a blackmailer, and he saw in you a gold mine. Please go on, Monsieur Poirot. It was easy enough for you to persuade the Home Office that Amberiotis posed a security threat and to keep track of all his movements. You learned that Amberiotis was to visit a dentist, your own dentist, recommended to him by the real Miss Sainsbury Seal. You seem to be suggesting, Monsieur Poirot, that I am possessed of almost supernatural powers. Perhaps you are, Mr. Blunt. Having disposed of Miss Sainsbury Seal, your next step was to dispose of Molly himself. You shot him just as you were leaving his surgery and then pressed the buzzer. The boy brought up the fake Miss Sainsbury Seal, your wife. The pair of you carried Molly's body into the adjoining office. You then exchanged the files of Sylvia Chapman for those of Miss Sainsbury Seal. You put on a white linen coat and pressed the buzzer for Alfred to show up Amberiotis. I know from my own visits that the boy was never allowed to enter the surgery. He opened the door and let the patient pass in. He would not have seen you. You are a great storyteller, Monsieur Poirot, but are you really expecting anyone to believe that Amberiotis didn't know who I was? Amberiotis had never met Morley, and he would only have had the briefest glimpse of your face. You explained to him that it would be best to freeze the gum and injected a dose that would kill him within a few hours. With such a strong anaesthetic, he would hardly have been aware whether you were doing anything to the tooth or not. He leaves suspecting nothing. You and your accomplice drag Morley out of the office and arrange his body on the floor, and it is all so easily accounted for. Morley realizes he has given Amberiotis an overdose and takes his own life. But then you realize that I am involved in the case. 
I must be convinced at all costs that this is a public affair. And so you invite me down to Exham and stage the charade of Frank Carter's attempt on your life with a pistol, a twin to the one with which you shot Morley, which was rigged to go off as he was clipping the hedge, all for the benefit of Hercule Poirot. Don't misunderstand me. But how much of this is pure guesswork? And how much do you actually know? I have a certificate of the marriage of Alistair Blunt and Gerda Grant at an Oxford register office 16 years ago. Frank Carter saw you going down the stairs of Morley's surgery just after 25 past 12. But he only saw you from above and did not recognise you. How fair of you to mention that. Anything else? Yes. The woman who calls herself Helen Montresor, but who is in fact your wife Gerda, was arrested this afternoon. Ah. That rather tears it. The real Helen Montresor, your distant cousin, died in Canada seven years ago. Gerda and I rather got a kick out of it all, you know. I married her without telling my people. She was acting in repertory at the time and my family were terribly straight-laced. We agreed to keep it quiet and she went on acting. And it was through her acting that you both met Miss Sainsbury Seal? Yes, she was in the same company as Gerda. She knew about us, of course. But Rebecca Arnholt never suspected anything? Goodness, no. I wish I could make you understand about it. I had the chance of marrying a queen and playing the part of Prince Consort, or even King. I loved Gerda. I didn't want to get rid of her. So we agreed to keep our marriage secret, and it all worked out quite splendidly. I liked Rebecca enormously. I was genuinely sorry when she died. But you kept up your relationship with your real wife at the same time. Oh, yes. And we got a secret thrill out of our meetings. Gerda had a repertoire of seven or eight characters. Including Mrs. Alfred Chapman? Yes. We used to meet in Paris and Rome. We even went to Norway once. And then I passed her off as my cousin, Helen Montresor. It was exciting and kept romance alive. And then you were recognised in the street by Miss Sainsbury Seal. And she told Ambariotis. You must see, Monsieur Poirot, that something had to be done. It wasn't only myself. If I was ruined and disgraced, my country would suffer as well. Now, I've done something for England. I've kept it solvent and I've kept it safe from dictators, from both fascism and communism. And now that the whole of Europe's in the melting pot, I'm needed more than ever. And a damned double-crossing foreigner was threatening to destroy my life's work. We were sorry about Sainsbury Seal, but we had to silence her. Gerda asked her to call at the flat in King Leopold Mansions and slipped Medinol in her tea. It was quite painless. And what about Morley? A cruel necessity. I see. So, Monsieur Poirot, what about it? As I told you, your wife has been arrested. And now it's my turn. That was my meaning, yes. I've killed three people. So, presumably, I ought to be hanged. But you've heard my defence. 
I sincerely believe that I am essential to the continued peace and well-being of this country. You agree, surely? Oh, yes. You stand for the things that, in my view, are important. For sanity and stability and honest dealing. Then can't you just retire from the case? And your wife? I've got a good deal of pull. Mistaken identity. That's the line to take. But three human beings are dead. And Carter may hang for Morris' murder. He'd be no great loss. Sainsbury Seal had the mind of a hen, and Ambriotis was a crook and a blackmailer. And Morley? I'm sorry about Morley. He was a decent fellow. But after all, there are other dentists. Hmm. That is where you and I do not see alike, Mr. Blunt. For me, the lives of those four people are just as important as your life. You're wrong. No, I am not wrong. You are a man of great natural honor and rectitude, but within you, the love of power blinded you to all else, so you sacrificed these lives and thought them of no account. Within a matter of months, Europe may be plunged into the most terrible conflagration. The safety of the whole nation depends on me. I am not concerned with nations, monsieur. I am concerned with the lives of private individuals who have the right not to have their lives taken from them. So that's your answer? Yes. That is my answer. If you'd care to come with me, Mr. Blunt. So, have you concluded your interview, Monsieur Poirot? Yes, mademoiselle. It is all over. What do you mean by that? Mr. Alistair Blunt has been arrested for murder. I never thought you'd have the nerve to go through with it. I reckon he'd buy you off. No, I never thought that. The world is yours now, the new heaven and the new earth. In your new world, mes enfants, let there be freedom, but let there be pity. That is all I ask. We will not forget that, Monsieur Poirot. As I set off home along the deserted street, a figure came scurrying after me. So what line did the great man take? He admitted everything and pleaded justification. He said this country needed him. So it does. But I remembered a quotation from the Bible that I heard in Blunt's church at Exham. What was that? Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Yes, quite apposite. I take the tube here, but there is something I should tell you. What is that, Mr. Barnes? I should have told you before. QX-912. I'm Albert Chapman. That's partly why I was so interested. I knew, you see, that I'd never had a wife. He hurried off down the steps to the underground, and I remembered the words of the nursery rhyme. Nineteen twenty, my plate's empty. 
In the final part of Agatha Christie's One, Two, Buckle My Shoe, Hercule Poirot was played by John Moffat, Chief Inspector Jap by Philip Jackson, Alistair Blunt, Philip Franks, Mr. Barnes, Patrick Godfrey, Frank Carter, Dominic Colchester, Jane Oliveira, Amanda Waring, Howard Rakes, Robert Portal. The music was composed by Tom Smale. One, two, buckle my shoe was dramatized for radio by Michael Bakewell and directed by Enid Williams. presentation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to like and rate this podcast on your favorite app. Also, there's a Nostalgic Mystery Radio YouTube page for your perusal to subscribe to. You can contact me by emailing me at nostalgicmysteryradio at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day or evening. And again, thank you for listening.